Hello, I'm Kerry Phillips and thanks for downloading this podcast from RN Summer. It's Rear Vision and the story of one of the world's most successful global companies and the scandal that's cast a shadow over its reputation. Mr. Jones and Mr. Crampler were neighbours. They each had $3,000. With his money, Mr. Jones bought himself a $3,000 car. With his money, Mr. Krempler bought himself a new refrigerator, a new range, a new washer, a new dryer, a record player, two new television sets, and a brand new Volkswagen. Volkswagen, the German automaker, is one of the largest and most successful in the world. On Rear Vision, we'll hear about its history and the reasons for this success, as well as the recent emissions cheating scandal that has tarnished its name. The company was founded in 1937 with the aim of creating a Volkswagen, a people's car. Dr. Paul Neuenhaus is an automotive historian. As most people are probably aware, Volkswagen started as a project in Nazi Germany to create a car for the people. People could sort of buy stamps. I think it was five marks a week or something and gradually save up for this car. And then when it was ready, they would get the car. That was the plan. Do you happen to know how popular the saving scheme was? How popular were these cars? Um, Even then, most people couldn't afford a car, especially in Germany. I mean, Germany was quite a poor country, so car ownership in Germany was less than half of what it was in the UK, for example. So a lot of people, even though they might have aspired to car ownership, still couldn't afford the five marks a week. I think there were several hundred thousand, though, who had signed up to the scheme. Did they actually have a car when they started this program? Yes, they did have a car. The government engaged Ferdinand Porsche of later sports car fame, but he was an Austrian engineer who ran uh, essentially an engineering consultancy. So they engaged him and asked him to develop a car according to a particular specification. And it included a number of elements that uh, we see in the later Beetle. The, The history is quite interesting in that Adolf Hitler's first experience of a car was of a 1920s Tata, a car from Czechoslovakia that had a horizontally opposed air-cooled engine and he thought that was the bee's knees. The first prototypes we would already recognise as Volkswagens, even though it was then refined during a number of years. But the Volkswagen, as we understand it today, was essentially ready by 1938. But with the outbreak of World War II in 1939, the factory was turned over to the Nazi war effort. The factory was actually largely destroyed, but they they sort of kept going in parts of the factory and sheds and things like that, largely with slave labour. So by the time the war finished, I think about a third of the workforce was German and the rest were people from other occupied countries. What happened to the business after the war? Well, bits of the factory were left and quite a bit of the equipment was left. So the British actually appointed one of their number, Major Ivan Hurst, to sort of take control of the factory. And he actually used the parts that were left to build, I think, two or three Beetles, which they then took around the British car industry to see if anybody was interested. And most British car makers said, oh, no, this will never work. Nobody will ever buy anything like that. So then they got back to Germany and they said, well, we'll we'll start making this. We've got lots of bits left. We've got a workforce here that need to be employed. People came back from the front and needed to be given jobs. So initially it was really 
put to work again as a job creation scheme. And then for a number of years, they started making Beatles, essentially. I think one of the first to take an interest in it was a Dutch entrepreneur or two entrepreneurial brothers, the Pond brothers. And they said, oh, this guy would work in the Netherlands. I mean, we haven't got a lot of money. Our country is destroyed, but people could just about afford this sort of thing. We'll start importing Beatles. And they put some money in as well. And then it sort of began to grow from there. So then the British said, well, I mean, we don't want to run a car factory in Germany forever. So we'll just hand this back to the newly created Federal Republic of Germany. And that's essentially what it did. So it did become a state-owned car maker. What were these early Beatles like? Penny Spark is Professor of Design History at Kingston University in London. Essentially, it's a streamlined car in the sense that it's, it's a curved body, which means that there's minimum air resistance. But it wasn't like the big American streamlined cars that had big sort of silver stripes and things on them to make them look as if they went fast. It's a reduced streamlined car, but essentially aerodynamic in that sense it's very small everything is integrated into the body shell so things like the headlamps are integrated into the fenders the door handles have a little concave is it or convex i forget which a little, little little space underneath it to allow them to sort of sit flush with the with the steel work the original car actually had a, a split rear window which was called the pretzel although later models did away with that and had a single rear window. But it's it's compact, I suppose that's the word. Interior-wise, again, very, very simple. Nothing there that didn't need to be, but comfortable, comfortable enough, well upholstered. As I say, five people, three children, two adults could fit into it very, very efficiently. Dr Hugh Davies from the Institute for Future Transport and Cities at Coventry University says that Ivan Hurst, the British major who'd put the factory back into production at the end of the war, recruited a man named Heinrich Nordhoff to run it in 1948. And it was Heinrich Nordhoff who was responsible for the evolution and the success of the Volkswagen Beetle, improving the quality of the vehicle looking to expand into export markets and basically constantly developing the Volkswagen Beetle from what it was after the immediate aftermath of the Second World War to the Beetle that was a popular vehicle, certainly in the US in the 1960s. What the success of the Beetle was due to was the way in which Volkswagen approached the market and putting that car out into the marketplace. In the 1930s in the US, there was two ways of basically marketing vehicles. One was the Ford way, which was to mass produce an identical vehicle in order to reduce the cost which the consumer paid. But the consumer had to accept the vehicle they bought one year would be the same vehicle that was bought by their neighbour the previous year. And there was the General Motors way of basically improving the vehicle and offering something different. So basically the next model year car which looked different to the previous model year. But in terms of the value chain, they didn't really focus on the downstream value chain, which was basically the support in the marketplace. They both took the same approach. Now, what Nordhoff did with the Volkswagen was he provided a quality product, but also ensured that when the customer was in receipt of that product, he enjoyed the best level of service and availability of spare parts that could possibly be enjoyed. So it was the reliability of the vehicle 
and also the aftermarket support that that vehicle enjoyed, which made it distinct from other vehicles available in the marketplace. In the US, they had quite a unique marketing campaign. Of course, the US went for bigger and bigger, more chrome-laden cars, and uh, and they found that there was, in fact, a, a part of the market that wanted to rebel against that and would go for a minimalist car. So they sort of traded on that in their marketing, and that allowed the US market to develop. But also, I mean, developing countries like Brazil, it became essentially the Brazilian car very rapidly. I mean, what people hadn't fully appreciated is that, of course, after the war, there was a different world out there. People had different requirements. And the luxury cars that had become sort of the bread and butter, really, in the late 1930s were no longer really mainstream cars. People wanted cheap cars. More people wanted cars. And the Volkswagen filled that niche quite nicely. So it actually grew very rapidly. And then they built up a kit facility, CKD. I don't know if you know that term. Completely knocked down kits were sent all over the world. And I think in 1954, they first set up an assembly facility in, in Australia, Melbourne. The shape of quality, the Volkswagen. 18 massive presses use 400 large dies to shape quality Australian steel into body panels. Around the world, 136 countries have imported the Volkswagen. Australia once imported it also. Not now. Now Australians make it. Volkswagen began assembling cars from kits in Clayton, Victoria, in 1954, but the cars proved so popular that they moved to full-scale manufacturing within a few years. During the 1960s, VW had 10% of the domestic sedan market, and Australian-made cars were exported to New Caledonia, Hong Kong and the Philippines. But there were too many companies making too many cars in Australia, and in 1968, Volkswagen went back to importing CKD kits before finally packing up shop in 1976. Rod Davies, with his brother Lloyd, wrote Volkswagen in Australia, The Forgotten Story. I think through the Red X trials particularly, people sat up and took notice because a car to go around Australia in those days was an amazing feat. Most of Australia was, in the outback particularly, was just dirt roads. The sound of a Beetle drew you in, the look, it was completely different to all the other cars. My brother and I have spoken about this and we, we feel that there's lots of people, in fact, the VW Club of Victoria is one of the oldest VW clubs in the world. They used to meet at the factory. And this nostalgia started right back when they first started making cars. We've often thought that there's people who follow and love VWs and that nostalgia, that feeling that my dad had one. There's an endearing love of VWs for some unknown reason. I don't know how I got involved with VW, but I did. And I think it was through my auntie having one. And so many families were exposed to it. And it was just a little bit off the beaten track. And there's some appeal about that. The other thing about VWs is they lasted. Being air-cooled, if it was a hot day, it was still cool, but it would just keep going. Its, its cruising speed was its maximum speed. So ideal for Australian conditions. Look, I suppose it got to a point where it was becoming an expensive car to make. There was also, around the time of the 68 change, safety features were now coming on board. 
So there was a time limit for the car. But in that period of 54 to 76 particularly, a lot of families were exposed to VW. And I think even the brand today does well from its history, even though it sometimes doesn't recognise its local history. More of late, the marketing is in some ways highlights that that 60s, 70s memories that people have and those sort of ideal times and going surfing in the combi and things like that. In 1950, Volkswagen's Type 1, the Beetle or Bug, had been joined by a model they called Type 2. Known to us as the Combi, it became the vehicle of choice for hippies and surfers during the 1960s. That takes us back to the Pond Brothers in the Netherlands, the Dutch importers from the late 40s onwards. They actually came up with that design and they were in Wolfsburg where the factory was and and saw a little chassis, basically, beetle chassis that was used in, in the factory to take bits from one part of the factory to the other. And they were saying, they said, that if you put a body on that, you can turn it into a nice small commercial vehicle of a type that didn't really exist at the time. And there is a sketch that you find in any book on Volkswagen, and it's probably on the internet as well, a sketch they made over lunch and saying, look, this is what it would look like. So Volkswagen said, well, I mean, if you are, <laughs> if you are offering to buy some, then we'll have a go. And he said, yeah, I'll have some. And uh, th- that is, again, how, how that product started. And as you know, it's, it's quite iconic. During the 1960s, sales of the Beetle in the US soared, thanks in part to smart advertising campaigns that appealed to younger, sophisticated consumers. It became fashionable. I think one of the things about the Beetle is it's so neutral, if you like, in terms of its design, that it can be used to a number of different ends. I mean, as I say, it was um, Nazi chiefs who used it just before the Second World War, immediately after the British Army used it. And then it goes into America, obviously. But because it's so neutral, it can almost be sort of bent or directed at any kind of meaning that you want to put into it. And I think it was adopted by youth because it's cheap, obviously, and, and easy to easy to buy and easy to drive. And it became a cult youth object, I think. That's what happened. So an object that was an anti-status object in a way. It's not designed to be a Rolls Royce or something that has inherent status in it but because it can be pulled into whatever cult you want to pull it into it went easily into youth culture I think and it was through that route that it became iconic I think and you can think of um, you know the film The Love Bug late 60s where it becomes this sort of youth toy almost a kind of youth icon it's got this as I say complete functionality but because it as I say it's not trying to be anything other than its engineering and its function you can then take it into a whole range of possibles and one of those I think you're right it became I, mean, I think it started off as a kind of tool a kind of functional thing and ends up almost as a kind of toy which obviously has got a fun connotations to it absolutely you're listening to rear vision with Kerry Phillips on RN Radio National this is the story of one of the world's most successful car companies Volkswagen and shortly the scandal that's cast a shadow on its reputation By the end of the 1960s, the Beetle was facing serious competition and Heinrich Nordhoff, the man who'd steered the company through 20 years of spectacular growth, was about to retire. Volkswagen and uh, Heinrich Nordhoff looked to a single model policy and looked to improve that single model to improve the reliability when it was used in service. Now, the American public, which is one of Volkswagen's main markets and followed by the European public, they realised in the late 1950s, early 1960s that the car itself 
even though it was reliable, was probably falling behind the times. Even though you had the reliability, it was not giving the same ownership experience as models from different manufacturers. This, combined with the recession of 66-67, led to a sharp decline in the sales of the Volkswagen Beetle at the time. So Volkswagen had to basically think, what was it going to do long term? Could it be reliant on a single model, which was basically in a declining market share? Or would it have to basically look to introduce other models that would eventually replace the Volkswagen Beetle? From the mid to late 60s onwards, the fashion changed to front-wheel drive. And really... It could be argued, and it has often been argued, that Volkswagen stuck with that original design concept a bit too long. By the time they realized that they had sort of missed the boat, fortunately for them, and this really saved the company, they were able to take over another German company, the company that we now know as Audi, basically. That was an independent company, was in trouble. It was partly owned by Mercedes, but they said, well, we don't, it's not the sort of car we want to make. They sold it to Volkswagen and they had front wheel drive expertise going back to the early 1930s. So they were one, probably one of the leading producers of front wheel drive cars in Europe. So suddenly by buying that company, Volkswagen could bring this cutting edge front wheel drive technology in house. What they did initially is they used the car that Audi had just developed, uh, Audi 100, and used that to build the first front-wheel drive Volkswagen, the Passat, which was launched in 1973, I think. And at the same time, got Audi with Volkswagen engineers to develop a new, smaller front-wheel drive car, and that became the Golf, which was launched in 1974. How successful were these new models? Well, the Passat was a bit big. It was reasonably successful. They got their money back on that because that platform was made for many years in China. But the Golf became, within a few years really, Europe's best-selling car. So essentially took over where, where the Beetle left off. The advantage Volkswagen had, because it was so big, it had a very good distribution network. It had dealers everywhere. So a lot of people who weren't too interested in cars would just go to their local car dealer, which happened to be a Volkswagen one, and would buy the next Volkswagen that came along. And that really was very helpful. So the, the Golf became really Europe's best-selling car very quickly, within a few years. Did it have the same kind of reliability that the Beetle had? Sort of, yes. It's a, it has a water-cooled engine, which adds additional complexity, of course. But the Golfs are generally uh, known for their reliability, as are Volkswagens generally. And, and Golf is now in its sixth or seventh generation, so uh, it's got bigger and fatter and heavier and more complex. But Golfs are still among the best-selling cars in Europe. It was a scandal on the other side of the Atlantic that would challenge the good name of the brand. We have to go back a bit. And you have to look at the management of the Volkswagen company at the turn of the century and what the management was trying to achieve. It wanted to become the number one automaker in the world. It wanted to unseat Toyota. One of the weaknesses in terms of the Volkswagen group was its underrepresentation on the US market. So it had to basically stop production of the Volkswagen Rabbit, which was their equivalent of the Golf in the US in, I think, the late 1970s, early 1980s. 
but it always wanted to go back into the US market. It saw that to be a strong company, the world's number one automaker, it needed not only the volume, but it needed to basically have equal volume in the three core markets, a third in Europe, a third in Asia, a third in the US. Now, Toyota, if you look at the nearest competitor, that had a more balanced volume across those three sectors. So Volkswagen was really desperate to increase its market share in the US, which had been receding since about 1974, with one blip when the Volkswagen Beetle, the new Beetle, came up, and that was caught on by the fashionable set in the West Coast. So it needed to increase its share in the US. It's a technology company in terms of its expertise in diesel engines, and it's seen that as somewhere where it could expand in the US. So basically provide the consumer with something that was technically advanced and what the competitors couldn't actually provide. So it focused itself on growing in the US market and growing in the US market through increasing the sales of diesel engine Volkswagen Group products. The problem is that for diesel to meet the latest emission standards, it really requires quite a lot of expensive equipment. So it's actually more difficult for a diesel engine to meet tightening emission standards than for a petrol engine. This was already flagged up around 2005, 2006, in fact. But because they were so wedded to diesel, they persisted with diesel. The problem was that they really fell foul of California emissions regulations, which are tighter than the rest of the US. California regulations are also used by, I think, nine other US states. So a large chunk of the US follows those standards. And the diesel cars just couldn't meet the standards. So what they decided was the cheapest option, what somebody decided, either in Volkswagen or in one of their suppliers, was if they used the intelligent software that modern cars have to detect when the car was being tested and then make sure that it was running at its cleanest when it was being tested, then it didn't matter how it ran the rest of the time. Now, in order to run that clean, the performance is quite noticeably reduced. So I think ordinary customers wouldn't particularly like that. And that's why they decided that was the best solution. Volkswagen has admitted its diesel cars in the United States have software that secretly thwarts emissions tests. The German giant is now facing fines up to $18 billion and potential criminal charges. In New York, the chief executive of Volkswagen America came clean. Our company was dishonest with the EPA and the California Air Resources Board and with all of you. And in my German words, we have totally screwed up. They were found out, yes, actually by some independent researchers. These independent researchers were really trying to promote diesel in the US, saying, why don't more Americans drive diesel? Because it's, it's much better for CO2 emissions. So they said, well, if we can learn from the Europeans how this is done, we can tell the Americans that, see, this is how the Europeans meet these tight emission standards. What they found, of course, is just the opposite. They found that the Europeans did not meet these tight standards and and Volkswagen was found out. And then the whole thing sort of escalated from there. There there was a way at the time of meeting the California standards, but it would have added cost and complexity because you have to do what in Europe we do with truck engines, and that is add ureic acid to it. It's a compound called Add Blue. So you have an additional tank on the truck that then feeds this stuff into the engine as it runs. This can be done on cars as well, 
But of course, it means that customers have to be told to add this stuff to it, which is an additional responsibility on the customers. And it was felt within Volkswagen and some other companies that that was just one task too many to ask customers to do. In 2016, nearly all US owners of affected cars agreed to take part in a $25 billion settlement, also resolving claims from environmental regulators, states and dealers, although Volkswagen is still being pursued in court by some 2,000 American car owners. What's been the effect of the scandal? Well, not as much as people might have thought. Initially, after the scandal broke, there was a rapid decline in sales in North America, but not really beyond there. In Europe, there's been a steady but slow decline in diesel sales generally, and in the Far East, it was totally unaffected. There were very few diesel sales there anyway. But what it has done, it sort of rolled through the industry, rolled through society, and certainly here in Europe, and and definitely in the US, diesel cars are now less acceptable. So it has really hit diesel car sales generally. What Volkswagen themselves have said, they have announced they're going to go much more into electric vehicles. And they have announced a number of electric vehicles. They've introduced an electric version of the Golf, etc., etc. So they're rapidly rolling out electric vehicles to atone for their sins, as it were. Despite the emissions cheating, Volkswagen continues to be one of the world's foremost automakers. Aside from the little slip-up of late, then it was ultimately a very successful company. We measure company success not only on the number of vehicles produced, but the return on the investment. And Volkswagen is right up there in generating a high return on its investment. And I'm talking about return on investment as a group, maybe not talking about the individual brands because now Volkswagen forms a brand within the Volkswagen Group. What we have to look at over time is Volkswagen has been successful at certain periods of time and less successful in other periods of time. So you had the initial Nordhoff era with the single model policy that started after the Second World War, seeing the success of the Beetle and the Transporter on the German market and on numerous international markets. That came to a close in the late 1960s when the consumer moved on to more up-to-date products and we've seen a decline in the sales of Volkswagen's core product. That led to the development of alternative Volkswagen product, the Type 4, before moving on to the water-cooled era with the Polo, the Golf, and the Passat. But Volkswagen also underwent some other mini crisis at certain times. But the advantage of Volkswagen is its setup and the way it operates under German law. So in German law, you have a board of 20 persons, 10 from the company and 10 from the workers. But Volkswagen is slightly unique, even related to other German companies, because its owner, it's still 20% owned by the state of uh, Lower Saxony. And what that means is the representatives from the state of Lower Saxony, actually, they sit on the company side of that board. So what you actually have is you have the workers and the unions occupying 10 of the board seats, but you also have the local state government occupying two of the company seats. So in effect, you have 12 of the 20 seats being occupied by 
persons or institutions that have a vested interest in keeping employment high and keeping productivity high at Volkswagen. So in all these minor and major recessions and all these hiccups that Volkswagen has gone through, there hasn't necessarily been the retrenchment that may happen in other companies. They've continued to basically look forward and continue to basically make the best decisions in terms of the long-term success of the Volkswagen company. Dr Hugh Davies from the Institute for Future Transport and Cities at Coventry University. We also heard Dr Paul Newenhouse, co-director of both the Centre for Automotive Industry Research and the Electric Vehicle Centre of Excellence at Cardiff University, Penny Spark, Professor of Design History at Kingston University in London, and Rod Davies, author with his brother Lloyd of Volkswagen in Australia, The Forgotten Story, now sadly out of print. Jenny Parsonage is the sound engineer for this rear vision. I'm Kerry Phillips. Thanks for listening.